0: Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own my special intro troops that campaign. That's why you hear the same old things they claim, never
1: came. Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we'll hear from the editor-in-chief of Adbusters magazine, Hallie Lazen. The force behind Adbusters Media Foundation, Lazen has recently discussed censorship efforts to suppress the magazine. Adbusters was pulled from 1,300 stores in Canada recently without barely a blip in the media. We'll hear from Callie Lazen about the history of Adbusters and their latest campaigns against censorship and corporate control in media. Later in the program, we're joined by Chase Palmieri of Predator.com, crowd-contested media. We'll talk about this Startups' efforts to teach media literacy online to the public on a user friendly platform that rates news sources for accuracy and integrity, much like Rotten Tomatoes does for films or Yelp for restaurants. An hour on media affairs on the Project Censored Show, coming up next. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we are delighted to bring Kali Lawson. He is the force behind the Adbusters Media Foundation. He is editor-in-chief at Adbusters Magazine, author of several key books over the last two decades, including Culture Jam, Design Anarchy, and of course also Meme Wars. These were books that were really ahead of their time in a lot of ways, and they were quite prescient, and I think that it's important that if you don't know about Kylie Lawson's work in Adbusters, which I think most people listening to our show do or should, but if you don't, definitely take a look at the work of Adbusters. And Kylie Lawson, it's great to have you on the Project Censored show. Welcome. Happy to be here. It's been a while since you and I have talked. There's several things that we want to get to today, including the most recent effort to censor Adbusters work raising awareness about the corporatocracy. But Kali Lazen, tell our listeners a little bit about how far AdBusters goes back and what you do.
0: We started in 1989. We were actually born out of an act of of supreme censorship when some of our TV ads, our TV mind bombs, we were unable to buy airtime on on some of the the big commercial stations here. And, and, And I remember at that time, I was totally outraged, you know, that a citizen doesn't have the right to walk into their TV station plunk some money on the table and say, give me 30 seconds of airtime, I've got something to say. They refused to, to run some of our our ads that uh, talked back against the, the forest industry that was clear-cutting everything in the Pacific Northwest and at the same time trying to tell us that they were doing such a fantastic job managing our forest and they were buying millions of dollars worth of airtime and full-page ads in the, in the newspapers and so on. And yet when we little group of people here in Vancouver who wanted to talk back against them and tell the other side of the story. The TV stations even refused to sell us any airtimes. So we were born out of an act of censorship, and I've been chafing at the bit ever since, really. And you certainly have, and you've been
1: doing a lot of it with magazine and so many other things that you do. And you're out of Western Canada, Vancouver. Are you still all in Vancouver?
0: Our headquarters is in Vancouver, but our magazine is is actually Canada's best-selling magazine outside the country. We're on newsstands in countries all around the world. Our biggest readership is right there in the United States of America.
1: And for folks that want to learn more, you can go to adbusters.org. Kyle Austin, you just mentioned something that was at the core of what Adbusters was all about and fighting against, and that's corporate tyranny, particularly how it's manifest in media censorship, corporate censorship. And you and your organization for decades now have tried to raise awareness of both that censorship and corporate control of the public sector. You just mentioned the clear-cutting issue. I can't repeat these stories enough. And the clear-cutting story isn't the only time that you've dealt with censorship. You tried to buy airtime on CNN, on other places. You're talking about serious amounts of money that you raised and tried to buy airtime for your historic yeah, Buy yeah. Nothing Day. C- can you talk a little bit about that story to remind our yeah, listeners? Yeah, well,
2: after,
0: after we were refused, after the commercial TV stations refused to sell us airtime here in Canada, we sort of figured that we were onto something. something. Because a lot of people found it outrageous that in a free country, the citizens don't have this right to be on the public airwaves. So then we started producing a whole bunch of what we called anti-ads, or later on we started calling them mind bombs and... And we tried to air them on CNN and, and ABC and NBC and CBS. And we went to Australia and tried to buy some time there. And I went over to Japan once and tried to buy some time there and in the UK. And, and we found out that this was true all over the world. If you come up with a provocative message that seems to go against the grain of commercial television, then they don't like it. They, they feel it goes against their business model and they will basically. Uh, refuse to sell you the airtime because they're afraid that if you go head on head with uh, the fashion industry or whatever industry that they will then stop uh, spending their millions of dollars on their ads so basically we have uh, at that time 20 20 30 years ago in on commercial television which at that time was the the biggest social communications medium of the time it was literally impossible to have free speech and censorship was routine of course since then things have changed a little bit. And at that time, during, at the time on CNN, they refused to sell the airtime. The only way I could actually get the ad on was to go on and do an interview and then force them and say, all right, I'm going to do the interview if you air my ad. They aired the ad and then we talked about the ad. But since then, of course, the whole communications system has changed because the digital revolution around that time started washing over us. And and now you the internet is, of course, way freer than television ever was. And now we do have a kind of a place to go to where we can get some traction for whatever messages we want to put out. But still, even though the common perception is that the internet is now the place to go, and that's where most of the communications happens and so on. But you know, for for most ordinary people, television is still the very, very dominant medium in their lives. They still spend many hours watching it. And if you want to win an election, for example, you still have to use TV ads. I would argue that it's still a An incredible shame that that 30 years after we brought this issue of of censorship on commercial television to the people of the world, that somehow we still have not been able to win uh, legal action. And and we spent $100,000 trying to fight legal action against this sort of censorship. And 30 years later, you still don't have freedom of speech on commercial television.
1: The best way to ensure you have freedom of the press is to own one.
0: But in your case, you couldn't even buy it. For me, it's, it's a very, very personal thing because I was born in the middle of the Second World War in, in Estonia and in, in my country for 50 years after the Second World War, it was controlled by the, the, the Soviets and, and, and there you were not allowed to, to speak back against the, the government. And if you did, then they would be held to pay, you know, they would dub you as a mentally deficient person and you were never able to get a decent job and and your life was basically over. So they had complete control of of information and, and they were making sure that nobody spoke back against them. And, you know, a couple of generations later, I find myself in North America, the so-called land of the free and the home of the brave and all that uh, talk about freedom. And there, all of a sudden, we were unable to talk back against the sponsor. We were able to talk back against the industries. And and in a way, it is an even more pernicious kind of censorship than, than perhaps what happened in Estonia.
1: You're onto something there. And that's certainly something that we've argued at Project Censored we go back to 1976, and a lot of folks that didn't know about us would say, well, what do you mean there's media censorship? Or what, what do you mean the United States doesn't have a free press? You've got the Democrats, you've got the Republicans, you've got liberals and conservatives. They don't really understand that that's part of the edifice or part of the illusion that's set up that there is this wide-ranging platform of public debate and discourse. But it's actually quite myopically controlled by those that own the means of the production of the messaging, which is what AdBusters was pushing back at, right? That was a major force behind AdBusters. And of course, AdBusters was a major force associated with the Occupy movement a decade ago.
0: You know, today we live in an age where where things are going catastrophically wrong on, on many, many fronts. On the ecological front, we have climate change that nobody has a solution to yet. And on a financial front, you know, we have a a global uh, financial and economic system that seems to be teetering on the edge almost every day. I wake up every morning, you know, half expecting that the Dow Jones has gone down by a few thousand points and that we're at the beginning of another meltdown. And so, you know, I, I think it's more than ever now important for voices of the people, we the people who can feel this slow decline that the planet has gone into. We all know that we need deep, systemic, profound, sometimes surprising solutions to those problems. And if we, the people, if our voice is muzzled, if we cannot get on, on television, and also the, the internet has now become a kind of a strange place where you may have something really important to say, but the way that the algorithms work, your voice is quite often muted and it's very, very hard for you to rise up and say something above the incredible noise of, the, of, 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 of cyberspace. So basically, we're in a situation where, where those bottoms-up voices of us, the people, is now more critical than it ever has before in human history, and yet somehow we don't have a voice. And this great
1: irony that the internet had promised so many platforms for people's voices. And of course, as you mentioned, it is definitely widely more accessible than, than commercial television ever was. But there's an extraordinary rise of the platforming, shadow-banning, confirmation bias in a lot of ways. It's the ultimate bad marriage of Orwell meets Huxley.
0: So the commercial forces... Took over television. I still remember television, you know, when I was a teenager in Australia. Everybody, my teacher, my high school teacher, I remember telling me that, oh, the television is going to change the world. It's going to give everybody a voice, and, and there's going to be a global village, and we'll all know each other, and the world will go into a better place. But then the commercial forces took over, and, 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 and uh, all of a sudden, television became a mass merchandising tool. And now, in a strange way, the same thing seems to be happening to cyberspace, to the internet, where all of a sudden, a few big platforms, Google, Facebook, etc., their algorithms dominate cyberspace. And they are not just throwing commercial messages at us like television did. They're actually surveilling us. They're actually finding out exactly who we are and, and tailoring the ads that come at us in a micro way that half the time we don't even know that it's happening to us. So in some strange way, the commercial forces have taken over the Internet with a vengeance that that makes what happened to television look like chicken feed. I'm afraid you're right
1: about that, Kylie Lazen, And again, the ad busters, one of the big purposes is to break through that bubble. And of course, one of the great books you wrote was on culture jamming. Can you remind our listeners what you meant by that at the time and how do you see that at work now?
0: Culture jamming grew out of this inability to buy airtime on on commercial television. We, We figured that commercial culture was leading us astray. It was getting us to consume more than we need. It was creating ecological damage. And eventually, of course, it gave us climate change and this strange world that we live in now. And we felt that one of the really powerful new forms of activism could be what we call culture jamming. Culture jamming wasn't a word that we coined, but we sort of took ownership of the word and we we launched a culture jamming movement around the world where we were trying to jam the commercial voices. We were trying to liberate billboards. We were trying to put dissenting messages everywhere. We were trying to provide a a counterforce to this almost invisible cultural imperialism that was happening with, with commercialism. And that movement is still very much alive, but its heyday was 10, 20 years ago when it became sort of a new form of activism for, for young people who weren't satisfied with the status quo
1: I'd like to remind listeners you're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio I'm talking with Kali Lazen, and he's the force behind Adbusters Magazine, Adbusters Media Foundation. We're going to continue our conversation about media and culture jamming and we're also going to talk about a very disturbing and recent development of another round of censorship for Adbusters Magazine We'll be back after this brief musical break Stay with us Welcome back to The Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome Kali Lazen. He is the force behind Adbusters Magazine and Adbusters Media Foundation, author of the books Culture Jam, Design Anarchy, and also a book, Meme Wars, The Creative Destruction of Neoclassical Economics, all very prescient books over the years. Adbusters.org is the website. Kelly Lousen, before the break, we were talking about a history of AdBusters and what you all have been doing for so many decades and the challenges we face. Well, there's an unfortunate occasion that AdBusters has yet again met with an extraordinary incident of censorship. The magazine removed from all 1,300 shopper drug marts in Canada, you recently reported. So could you talk about this latest round of extraordinary censorship
0: Shoppers Drug Mart is the biggest drug store in Canada. They have thirteen hundred stores all over the country, and uh, over the years, they have become the dominant newsstand distributor in our country here. So it is uh, critically important for any magazine like Adbusters that that uh, that wants to reach the people to be in Shoppers Drug Mart. And yet, all of a sudden, they delisted us. And then, when we tried to find out why, they they said, "Okay, well, we don't like what you you did in the." in the last few issues of Adbusters, and they cited photographs of carcasses, animal carcasses that we put into our magazine. And that was actually an article about changing diets. And and I remember we quoted a Nobel Prize-winning author, Coetzee, saying, I'll quote him because it's such an incredibly wonderful quote. He said, I find the thought of stuffing fragments of corpses down my throat quite repulsive. And I am amazed that so many people every day do it. So that was one story that they didn't like. And apparently they had a few complaints against pictures that we had there. And then the second thing they didn't like is that we had a spoof ad. A spoof ad that basically tried to launch a campaign about the corporate charter evocation movement, a campaign that we've been trying to launch. And we used to with Facebook and Goldman Sachs and Exxon. And and then at the very end, we said birth of the corporate charter revocation movement. And Mm. those were the two things that they cited as being objectionable. And they said that for those two violations of their policies, they basically delisted us is the word they used.
1: You know, when you're talking about publishing and you're talking about very political commentary, you're talking about very astute kind of remarks about the various systems in which we inhabit. Our food systems, our environmental ecosystems.
0: And the fact that we we don't seem to have the guts and the chutzpah, you know, to to talk back against the corporations in a very visceral way. And also, I should mention that uh, one of the reasons why we then launched a boycott shoppers uh, campaign against them for doing that is because many, many years earlier, like 15 years earlier, when Shoppers Drug Mart was still much smaller and hadn't become the dominant newsstand distributor in Canada, they delisted us many, many years ago as well. And at that time, Shoppers was owned by a kind of a Zionist person who really supported what's going on in the settlements in Israel. And he didn't like the fact that we were talking back against Israel, that we were supporting the Palestinians. And they delisted us at that time because of that. So for 15 years, we didn't exist in Shoppers Drug Mart. And then last year, suddenly we got back in again. And three issues after that, they delisted us a second time.
1: And the parent company, that's the News Group, it's a U.S. company that owns it now, right?
0: Yeah, but I believe that even News Group has now been purchased by Mm -hmm. some other large company. But I think that it's different in Canada and different again in America. So I think News Group may still have a role to play in newsstand distribution in the U.S., but in Canada, it is no longer.
1: So, Kelly Lawson, who then do you think made this decision? We're trying
0: to find out. We don't mind having a debate with them. And of course, you know, they are a a, a private company, and even though they are so huge that they're the dominant distributor around Canada, they should have the public interest in mind when they do stuff like that. But we still agree that they have the right to do whatever they please with their company. But we try to find out a little bit more, like how many complaints did they actually get? And and what was actually the reason? You know, what's wrong with showing uh, photographs of carcasses in a magazine? And they basically refused to talk to us, you know, it was basically, Mm. this is the way it is, you know, if you don't like it, stuff it kind of a feeling. And after what happened 15 years ago, we just decided that we're not going to let this one lie. So we decided to launch this boycott against them. I must admit that even though we had to fight back against shoppers and and launch this boycott, at the same time, you know, I have a feeling that, that we have much, much bigger fish to fry at this time. Our whole communication system has somehow gone haywire with a a platform surveilling us and so on, and where so many people don't even know what the truth is anymore, you know, with 30% of the people in America now sort of believing that Trump actually won the election and so on. The biggest thing in my mind right now is this rise of corporate power. The fact that Google and Facebook now have rule over our communication systems and, and that the oil companies dominate a lot of talk about climate change and, and that finance companies and banks like Wells Fargo can get away with unpardonable criminality against its own clients. So in a way, even though we're fighting this boycott against shoppers' market at the same time, I think we need to go way beyond censorship now and start talking about some of the more systemic problems that make censorship possible.
1: It's this kind of corporate control over what used to be the public sphere, right? And you yourself just noted legally that Shoppers Drug Mark has a right to decide what they put on the shelves as a private mm-hmm. company. But at what point does that private company become such an important part of the infrastructure of information dissemination that it falls into another category yeah. like we should be seeing with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? These are private companies, but let's not forget they go back to DARPA. I mean, this all goes back to tax money. These Not only do these companies get major tax perks, but a lot of this stuff is public money infrastructure that was built up that they're wildly profiting from and then turning around and suppressing the public voice.
0: Not only that, I think there has to be some sort of a trade-off between society and corporations, you know. I don't think that Facebook and, and Google have the right to surveil me the way they're doing. I never signed up for total surveillance. And yet that's exactly what they're doing. And somehow Somehow the way our laws are written, somehow the way our system works and somehow the incredible power that, that Google and Facebook have with, with their billions of dollars and their hundreds of lobbyists in Washington and their ability to, to some degree to mold the way that topics are presented to us and so on. I find it really strange that they've got so big and, and so powerful that somehow they're doing unconscionable things on my smartphone and I can't do anything about it. I feel like I was still living back in Estonia, you know, 50 years ago and somebody was totally controlling me and there's nothing I can do about it. So there's a kind of a, a loss of, of, of agency, a loss of power that, that we the people have felt in the communications realm. And that goes across the, the whole board, you know, when it comes to climate change and so on. Likewise, the oil companies for 20 years now it's changed a little bit, but for 20 years, I mean, they basically dominated the discourse on whether climate change was happening and, and they paid millions of dollars to denial groups and basically got away with a crime against humanity almost. Knowingly lying for decades Knowingly about the lying, impact. Just, just for the bottom line, yeah. So, so so we live in a world now where where these uh, kind of unconscionable things are happening in in all the critical areas of our lives and somehow we the people... You know, short of writing a letter to the editor or short of putting out a magazine like Adbusters or trying our best to get stuff going viral on the Internet. Short of that, we remain under, under the total control of, of a small handful of corporations in every single critical area of our lives.
1: I think you're right about that. And as an historian, I can't miss your allusion and your analogy going back to Estonia. This is a new totalitarian structure with different manifestation
0: And the old kind of politics, I don't think is really working all that well anymore. So we got rid of Trump and and, then here in Canada, we elected in a guy called Trudeau and so on. But somehow it doesn't really make a hell of a lot of difference. I have a feeling that, uh, of course, I like Biden a hell of a lot better than than Trump. But I look at a lot of the stuff that he's doing, that he's still a kind of a business as usual kind of guy. And when it comes to some of the real deep down systemic changes that need to happen, you know, in communications, in the ecological realm, in the corporate realm, in the science of economics and so on, in all those deep down areas of our lives where systemic change has to happen, they're not the ones who are going to pull off those changes. So at the moment, you know, here at Adbusters, we're working on on a book called The Third Force, A Field Guide to a New World Order. This book is going to be released later this year, I hope. And it's basically talking about the possibility of now that we the people hold this most revolutionary tool ever invented in the palm of our hands and billions of us all around the world have this tool. We have this this incredible power that we never had before and we're just learning how to use it. And now we have to learn to come up with a new kind of politics where we the people start pulling the shots from below. So we can still let our elected governments run the roads and infrastructures and collect taxes and do all the usual stuff that governments do. But when it comes to some of those deep-down systemic changes, like coming up with a new human right for people on the internet, a new human right for these hybrid human beings that we've now become, or when it comes to coming up with a two-cost global marketplace in which the price of every product tells the ecological truth, or, or when it comes to sort of pushing for a paradigm shift in the science of economics, or, or when it comes to sort of keeping the corporations honest and putting clauses into their charters so that they're forced to do the right thing, Those kind of systemic changes are not happening. And yet, we, the people that I call the third force, instead of coming in from the left or coming in from the right, we come in from the bottom and we push through a few big ideas, which I call metamemes. And we can play around with the deep down systemic changes that need to happen to the the planet if we're going to have any kind of a future in the 21st century.
1: Kelly Lazen, very astute observations and analysis. Definitely looking forward to the new book. And as you noted, on one level, we don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good with current developments, but seeing so many people in the liberal class celebrate the senator from MasterCard and TopCop this way, I mean, in other words, we're so far down that when something less than terrible happens, it's accepted as great. And it certainly isn't in that regard. And the system has shifted so far that way to the right with control of corporations. Mm-hmm. I think you're very wise and right to talk about bottom.
0: It's time for us to stop this never-ending left-right game. I think that we're sort of caught up in this left-right thing, and we think we have a major victory when we get our man to be elected president, or we get our government, uh, the government we believe in, to be in power. And yet, uh, more and more, I have a feeling that we're slowly, inexorably sort of spiraling into what looks to me like like a very long, dark age, you know, when all of a sudden, uh, you know, one day we wake up and climate change is out of control. and. And I feel over the last few weeks, it's, mm-hmm. I really feel that it is out of control. And one day we wake up in the, and then we find that the global economic system has collapsed. And, and this time, it's, it's, not going to, it's not going to be a quick fix like it was in 2008. But this time, it's a collapse that could last for a very long time. We're basically spiraling into a really dark place now. And we need some sort of a powerful we the people movement that comes up from the bottom and disrupts the whole left-right game that we've been playing for the last few generations.
1: Well, Kali Lazen, from the battle in Seattle, 99, to Occupy 2011, AdBusters has been a major force in these ways. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary of Occupy. but I wanted to hear your words on 10 years after Occupy, but it sounds like you have another great project coming out of AdBusters. But anything you want to say 10 years after Occupy, they gave us the language of that 99%.
0: A lot of people say it fizzled out, but big movements like like Occupy Wall Street, you know, they they never fix things in one fell swoop. We didn't push the ball over the line, but we politicized a whole generation of young people all around the world. And now I have a feeling that maybe 10 years later or maybe 15 years later or, or sometime in the future, all those people who were politicized 10 years ago you know, now we're wiser, now we're older, now we have a bit more power. And maybe this time we can finally come up with this one big idea that we never had uh, 10 years ago, and finally give the world something more than what happened last time.
1: Well, Kylie Lazen, adbusters.org. Thanks, as always, for all the important work you've done over the decades. I'm definitely looking forward to the new book, and we'll have to have you back on when that comes out later this year. Nice talking to you. And that was our conversation with Callie Lassen of adbusters.org. Up next on the Project Censored show, we welcome back the founder of Credder.com, Chase Palmieri. We'll talk about problems of trust in the news and what you can do to improve it. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we are delighted to bring back the former co-host of The Project Censored Show who has gone on and started his own podcast with the project that he founded, Credder.com. Credder.com is crowd-contested media. It is a media literacy type of project that is aimed to build trust in the news. If you're a listener of The Project Censored Show, you'll remember Chase Bulmeri. Chase is the founder and CEO of Credder.com, and Credder works to keep the news honest with the world's largest news review platform. It's like rotten tomatoes for news, and Credder aggregates article reviews from verified journalists and the public. There's a critic score and a public score into overall credibility scores for each news article, author, and outlet. And of course, as we'll get into our conversation, Chase and I will talk and reference the fact that trust in online media in particular is at record lows, and Credder's database of news reviews and ratings helps readers avoid time-wasting clickbait and quickly find the most trusted information on any given topic. And the mission at Credder, with the support of online readers everywhere, is to make the news complete for credibility, not clicks. Chase Palmieri, welcome back to The Project Censored Show.
2: Mickey, it's great to be back.
1: Always good to hear from you, Chase. And congratulations, too, on the launch of your Credder podcast, where you're talking to a lot of big tech folks. It's a stellar program that people can check out. And by the way, people can learn more at credder.com as we're talking here. But Chase Palmieri, remind our listeners, Credder came out of your project called Prideworthy, but where did this
2: all begin? What are you doing? And then let's start getting into the weeds with some updates this all began back in 2016. As a entrepreneur and entrepreneurial and small business graduate, I wanted to solve a problem that was important to me. And as you know, from my time with you co-hosting the Project Censored show, the lack of accountability in media was something that really triggered me. And so I took from my experience as a restaurant owner, dealing with Yelp and Google reviews, and as a longtime fan of other review sites like Rotten Tomatoes for movies. And I figured, well, there's no accountability in media. And we've never tried to give news consumers the ability to hold media accountable as a way of rebuilding trust in news and determining and tracking the reputation of sources. And so that's when we started Tribeworthy back in 2016, which morphed after getting some angel investment, grew and morphed into what is now Credder.com, Cred as in credibility there. And so Today, we are the world's leading news review platform. We refer to ourselves as the Rotten Tomatoes for News or the People's Media rating site and got over 10,600 live reviews, which has generated credibility scores for over 400 individual journalists and over 220 individual online news organizations, which actually covers a really large swath of the online media landscape. It's still just a start for what we want to do because we want to make Credder available in every language and to connect and empower news consumers everywhere. But we're off to a great start.
1: So Chase Palmieri, Credder.com. Tell our listeners, there's new people all the time. So some folks in our audience may not know about Credder or not know who you are and what you're doing But this is also an opportunity to invite people to check out the platform because the platform, you talk about creditor credibility, the platform welcomes and needs people to come in and use it to create a more credible type of platform. So the kind of people listen to this show would probably be the kind of people that would really enjoy working through your site, through creditor.com and evaluating news stories. Could you tell our listeners what will they see when they go to creditor.com and how does it work? What does it look like and what do
2: they do when they're there? Great question. So you can kind of think about the consumer-facing side of Credder as a news aggregator. So we have articles from all sorts of different authors and outlets, and any user to the site is able to submit an article of their choice as many articles as they'd like for other people to read and review. But the really key difference here is that on Credder's news aggregator site, which hopefully becomes everybody's first stop for getting their morning news, is that our articles come with Actual credibility scores next to every article, author, and outlet name so that you can really see the reputation of that source over time. And you can actually read individual reviews from other news consumers who've already read that article. So they can warn you whether you should be on the lookout for a certain problem in the article or they can celebrate it and recommend it to you as a great article that's worth maybe that 25-minute read besides seeing the ratings you also have the ability to review every single article you read and this really is the first use case in the world of being able to review an article that you just read and again those reviews bubble up into these overall scores for every article author and outlet
1: and so through this process you're also inviting people to engage in a more critically media literate way you're you're actually giving people the opportunity to specifically judge a news source, not just by someone's bias or personal opinion per se, but you're inviting them to give particular reasons as to how and why they're rating a story a certain way. Can you talk a little bit more about how that works?
2: Our review process at Creditor is not a simple one to five star scale. What we did is we worked with media literacy experts such as yourself. Maybe this is the time to mention that you are one of the official Creditor advisors.
1: Full disclosure, I am definitely... A fan of Credder as a media literacy educator, I find Credder to be a credible vehicle for that. And in fact, that's how you and I met. We share that passion and concern for the same problems and we want solutions. It's not just a thumb up, thumb down. There's a lot more to it.
2: What we did is working with you and other media literacy experts from across the country, we were able to actually develop a review process where news consumers can critically point out in just a couple of clicks exactly how they lost or gained trust in the article. And we think about this as the first digital media literacy review process that can now be in the pocket of any news consumer. That includes reviewing an article for a specific logical fallacy that you might find in the argument, or a specific type of bias, whether it's a racial bias, a religious bias, or a nationalist bias, as well as individual fact-checking options as well, like if a a study was misinterpreted or somebody was misquoted, something like that. And your other catch-all categories, such as it just being a generally surface-level report or a satire article or something that is clearly kind of a press release and not necessarily real reporting. And so basically, in a couple of clicks, news consumer through Credder can tag a very specific problem or celebratory tag, such as it being a great investigative story or well-balanced. And they can tag that to the article as part of their review so that other readers can see at a glance exactly why an article lost or gained other readers' trust. And it also, again, is a way of tracking and holding accountability over time for each author and outlet. So,
1: Chase Palmieri, two of the things you said there that I find to be worthy of re-mention here is the option to have people describe news sources as satire or press releases. And that's important to note, especially in the era of social media clicking and liking and sharing – is that oftentimes confirmation bias gets people locked into something and the algorithms help feed that addiction. And people then would be quick to share something because they don't really even read it. So they don't understand that if you actually went to the website and you click the about page that you might learn that that source is satire. Or you go and you click to a certain thing and you realize that that's not a news agency at all. It's a public relations firm. Those are two major forms of propaganda. One arguably unintentional as entertainment. The other one specifically is propaganda. And so it's important to point out that Kreter notices that and notes that that's an increasing problem in social media.
2: Yeah, so we have to account for what the real problem is here. And the reason news consumers are losing trust in online media is not because of any one reason. Yes, clickbait is a problem. Yes, financially incentivized press releases and stories are a problem. Yes, satire can be a problem. But really, the review process has to be able to account for the various different ways that news consumers are losing trust. And this is really a communication tool between news consumers and the people who are creating the news, the authors and outlets outlets themselves who seem to be confused as to why they're in the position they are in where people don't want to pay for a subscription or that they're losing trust. And so not only is that a problem, but we're also experiencing with the internet, the proliferation of online sources. So now anyone, and, you know, me spinning off the Creditor podcast is almost an example Anyone can go ahead and start to create their own website, their own blog, their own news outlet, and it can, with a pretty interface, pass as a journalistic outlet. And so it's more important than ever that we start to keep track of all of these different sources and start to review them so that we can have some insight into the overall quality and reputation and good actor that they might be. And you also invite
1: reporters, journalists, and these major media outlets to also participate on this platform.
2: Yeah, there's two ways that they do that. First, we broke our scores down into the critic category, which is comprised of verified journalists that just have to meet a few basic requirements, meaning they essentially need to be working for an outlet today actively. And then they get to review articles under the critic score, which is separate from the public score, which is open to anybody. Another way that we work directly with publishers is actually with our partner program. So shadowproof.com with Kevin Gostola over there at Shadowproof. They're a great example of our partner program at work where they actually have embedded Creditor's review tool into the template for all of their articles. So when a reader on shadowproof.com finishes reading an article, they can actually review that article right there through Credder's service. And it's a way of helping to signal to readers that you're willing to be held accountable and that you can actually signal to readers that you're a credible source as you gain more reviews. So we work directly with journalists and publishers.
1: Again, you're trying to bring everyone into the mix in the same room, so to speak, online at Credder. So let's bring up a couple of other issues or questions that often come up, just like you could have with a Yelp or Rotten Tomatoes you got to really go through and screen, and, and people do want to go and see, well, who was the best and the worst review there and why, right? People like to go to those extremes. And then, of course, there's always the challenge of, well, what if there's a campaign and people just really want to hit or hate on something or artificially boost and promote something? These days, that can be done with AI, with bots, you know, sock puppets, not even actual people per se. How does Credit address the problems of those kinds of
2: forces hijacking the platform? It's a great question and concern that we get all the time. And we actually built solutions into this from the foundation of Credder. I won't be able to address all of the different tools and systems and moderating those types of tools that we have into place, but let me touch on some of them. First off, we mentioned that the review process itself is unique to individual articles. So a bot left review would not really make sense in this context because it's not as simple as clicking a one to five star rating you really have to identify what was relevantly wrong or good about an article and then the next piece of that puzzle is that all reviews are transparently visible but they're also able to be voted on by the community as helpful or not helpful and this does two things First, it pushes the best review on any individual article all the way to the top of the page so that, you know, if you're only going to read one review on this article, you're reading the one that the community found the most helpful. The second is that by voting on the reviewers reviews. We're actually creating a separate score for the reviewers themselves. So the reviewers on Creditor are also held accountable. So a reviewer that is always leaving helpful, balanced, insightful, nuanced reviews is going to have a really high reviewer rating. And that's a signal to you on the platform how seriously you should be taking that actor. And then there's other various things that we're doing and plan to do, such as a phone verification as you're onboarding so that we can make sure you are at least somebody who has a phone. You know, this is pretty common on sites these days where we send you a little five-digit code that you plug in, which to us confirms that you at least have a phone. And that's a great way of cutting down on bot type behavior as well.
1: It means that it's you. It's a person. Kind of like that checking the box, I'm not a robot, or click all the boxes with red lights.
2: There's obviously ways to game that itself. There are ways, but you would have to invest money in having different phones and and SIM cards. And basically what the internet and a lot of these companies do nowadays are kind of creating a bunch of different barriers to entry so that it becomes really hard. And then Another concern that we get, so I'll just jump ahead to it, is the politicization of news today. So, oh, aren't left-wing people going to try to knock down right-wing articles and vice versa? For us, this is a feature, not a bug. So let me explain. Hold on one moment,
1: Chase. I'm sorry to interrupt. We need to take a quick break, and then I want to come back to this right-left issue as this challenge that you're going to build in. So hold on one moment. I just want to remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We are speaking with Chase Palmieri of credit.com talking about crowd-contested media and building trust in media sources online. We will continue our conversation with Chase Palmieri after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment today, we welcome back to the program Chase Palmieri, Credder.com founder, crowd-contested media like Rotten Tomatoes or Yelp for news sources building trust in online news communities. And before the break, we were getting more background on Credder and also wanted to make sure we reminded folks that I go back a ways with Chase. He was a co-host here, and I'm one of the unpaid advisors for Credder.com. As an educator, I think what Creditor is doing is really useful for places like The Classroom because they really address news media literacy. And we need more tools and vehicles to introduce that, particularly into our ever tech-savvy and media-saturated society. And even though some people may be tech-savvy, that doesn't necessarily mean they're news-savvy or source-savvy or critical thinkers. And this is, of course, something I think that Creditor.com does really well. Chase, before the break, we were playing devil's advocate and talking about problems and challenges of bots and AI and so on. And then you brought up something really great. And that is that, well, okay, somebody's on the left. They're going to go and slam anybody that has a right wing article and vice versa. You use the phrase that that's not a bug. You're basically saying, like, that's something that, that the platform actually incorporates really well in order
2: to do what it's supposed to do. Can you explain that? We at Credder believe that news should not be right or left wing. News should be the information about a story reported in a balanced way, ideally framing the issue from both sides or multiple perspectives. And so it's true that on Credder, if you're a reviewer who maybe has a left wing ideology and you see an article that is clearly written from a right wing framing, you're going to review it as being clearly from a right view framing. And that author and outlet should be held accountable as such. And the same happens vice versa. But what we see as a result is that outlets and authors who are continuously framing and reporting on news from their party line are getting lower ratings than the equivalent outlets reporting on the same story, but that are either providing both sides of the issue or are just presenting the information in a nonpartisan way. And so what we see is those outlets skate by unscathed with no negative reviews from the left or right. And so we can actually identify for the first time ever on Credder, the authors and outlets that both sides of the party lines can actually trust because They're essentially reviewing them as authors and outlets that both sides can trust.
1: And of course, through the system of evaluating, it's more than both sides. It's more than a red-blue or more than a left-right. There's so many different nuanced ways to rate stories and talk about what is or isn't working about them. The nuances become more noticeable because a lot of times when people do come at things from polarized perspectives... The nuances are lost and often devils are in the details. And so one of the things that your platform encourages people to do is carefully think about what is or isn't working about a certain article, a certain writer, a certain source.
2: And again, people are only ever reviewing the article. So it's not like you can review the author and outlet as being right-leaning because any outlet or author is capable of all sorts of different qualities of content. And so we really break it down on a per article level.
1: So when Tribeworthy came around and you morphed into Credder and you were doing some of the media literacy circuit and speaking in classrooms, a very useful educational tool in a lot of ways, this was the time of the so-called rise of post-truth America. Fake news and and the Trump administration and, and a lot of buzz around this. And one of the results of a lot of this stuff, of a lot of these noisy periods in terms of media in our history... More people are losing trust. They're losing trust in legacy news sources. And then there's this plethora of new news sources coming up. And the way that you can enter into that realm is much more accessible and easier now, which means there's literally millions of these sources floating around. And the only way people can make sense of them is if they have critical media literacy skills. So let's get back to the fusion of that. It seems to me that Creditor was born out of this problem to provide a solution in what we see as a really serious crisis in trust in the free press.
2: That's absolutely true. The review process itself is designed to make news consumers think through the different problems that might be prevalent in an article, but that they might not have had to really think through. So I'll admit, being on Creditor and being a reviewer on Creditor is a little bit more work than the average news consumer is putting themselves through, but it's designed to help protect you and, and to make sure that what you're letting into your mind and what you're considering truth is something that you've asked appropriate questions about. And then in regards to classroom use versus outside the classroom use, you and I are both huge proponents of more media literacy training and education in the classroom, especially from an early age. What I like about Creditor and what we're trying to do is to give students something that they can use in their everyday lives outside of the classroom when that lecture is done when the course curriculum is over and they've passed the class and they've gotten their grade and then they go back into the real world creditor is always there it's digital it's 24 7 it is a tool that they can use to help frame how they're thinking about content and to uh, really participate in that media literacy process and create a routine out of it so, Chase, one of the biggest challenges
1: that not only you but many in this line of work face is visibility, access to resources. How do more people find out that this thing that they wish existed already does? And I think recently you were involved in a pretty high-profile contest Can you talk about what just recently happened?
2: Last year, we were lucky enough to win Mozilla's 2020 Builders Award, which was a huge vote of confidence from the Mozilla Corporation, which, as most people will know, is the owner of the Firefox web browser. So that was huge. And then more recently, these past few months, we actually won the Sacramento Kings. So out of the the National Basketball Association, NBA, we won their Kings Capitalized 2021 competition and cash prize. And that comes with a whole host of free marketing services and uh, awareness uh, appearances on Fox Studio and and some other press outlets. And so that's been a great way to get the word out more. That's really just the beginning of a longer term relationship with the Kings organization based out of Sacramento. Those are all great. Those are kind of short term boosts and, and it helps bring in investment because as I want to be clear, we are a for profit company because we do believe that for this to be a product and a platform that we can continue investing in, there needs to be some kind of a revenue model attached to it. That's something that we can get into later so that we can kind of appease listeners that the revenue model is not in any way going to tarnish the credibility of the scores themselves. But we're also doing other things to bring more users in. So SEO is a great thing. Search engine optimization is huge. We've got the Creditor podcast. One of the new features that we're going to be building out here is the ability that when you leave a review, because we have this database, which I'm pretty sure is the world's largest database of journalists, we can actually tweet that review directly to the author and outlets so that we make sure that every time you leave a review, we are getting it in front of that journalist and outlet and making sure they're aware and being held accountable. So there's a lot of different things in the works to improve the visibility of Credder as a whole.
1: Back to the recent business with the Kings, what were you entering into and what were you acknowledged for specifically?
2: What we did is we entered the Capitalize 2021 competition, which is a competition for Sacramento and North Bay startups. And we went through a pretty rigorous month or maybe two month long process of pitching people on the King's team and partner organizations and a whole series of due diligence and things like that, where we basically had to present ourselves as one of the most compelling startups in this geographic area. So definitely some fierce competition, some really cool companies and founders that I got to meet through that. And then they invited the four finalists to one of the Sacramento Kings games. And then at halftime, they pulled out this big cardboard check and announced us as the winner. And so really, they're giving us the vote of confidence that they think we're one of the most compelling startups of 2021 to be keeping an eye on.
1: And here's why I wanted you to tell that story. First of all, a lot of people would, would don't follow it, but it's, this is happening in the NBA. We don't think NBA media literacy. We don't <laughs> right. think professional sports, people becoming more media literate. So what I want to call attention to is the fact that what happens with media literacy education and platforms like this, they do impact everybody. This isn't just for wonks and academics. This isn't just for people like us at Project Censored that breathe this stuff in and out every day. This is something that's accessible to everyone that also then contributes to a greater societal improvement project.
2: It's very clear that media literacy is going mainstream. I think it's been the last few years where it has really grown in the public consciousness. I know, obviously, the work you and Project Censored have been doing for many, many years is about trying to raise that awareness. And we might not like the phrase fake news, but that phrase did a lot to bring the public up to speed that there was a problem. And when they started looking into it, most people who really dive deep enough realized that media literacy training and education is the only sustainable way to address the problem. And again, Credder is a byproduct tool of that kind of thinking.
1: Anything else you want to share with our listeners? Maybe tell them how to contact you. That's the other thing that is really great about the work that you're doing is that you're very transparent and you are accessible. You correspond with the public and people that you know are interested in the platform. So in the last minute or so we have here Chase, can you wrap things up, things on your mind and tell people how they can get in touch?
2: Yeah, so I'll start with uh, how to get in touch with me and like you said Mickey, I'll talk to anyone, please reach out even if you have the harshest criticism. That's how we get better. So you can contact me at chase at com. Again, creditor is spelled C R E D D E R. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Chase Palmieri. You can check out the Creditor podcast on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. We're on all three of those. Very easy to contact, or just go to creditor.com, click on the About page, and you'll see links to my LinkedIn, my email, many different ways to get a hold of me. And then Uh, What's coming up around the corner for us right now is actually the beginnings of our revenue model. And this was something that maybe we won't have enough time to touch on here, but I want to at least outline it briefly. Social media platforms, search engines, web browsers, news aggregators, all of these different types of content platforms are under increasing pressure from their own users, the media, and now regulators to address content credibility issues on their own services. While at the same time, they're in this tricky place where they can't win. If they start making editorial decisions about the news, they actually risk losing their Section 230 liability protection and begin to move away from being a platform and towards being a publisher, which comes with a ton of liability. And so what Credder is now offering is the Credder Enterprise API, where we are allowing any of these platforms, any size and type, to license access to our ratings database so that they can rank content on their own using their own ranking algorithms or actually display credit scores next to individual pieces of content. And this does two things. One is it will hopefully allow these platforms to leave up more content and be less in the game of censorship or pulling down or removing content. And it also allows them to start to prioritize credible content and not credible content because it's an outlet that's been around for a while or it has mainstream attention, but services and news organizations that are deemed credible by the public, by the same users that are using their services. So the Creditor Enterprise API is a big push towards monetizing the platform in a way that doesn't even come close to... Messing with the credibility of the scores or losing focus on who we serve, which is the news consumers themselves. It's just us making sure that we get those ratings in front of even more people and really allowing the credibility of these sources to be free and live on more places than just credit.com. Chase Paul
1: Palmieri from credit.com. Thanks so much for coming back and giving us an update about the important media literacy work that you're doing online. And I know that there have been other sites now coming online that are, Maybe similar to what you've been doing, but you definitely were the trailblazer. You definitely were really ahead of that curve. But it's heartening to see other organizations and other people realizing the great need for this. And it's great if we can maybe build more awareness around the work that you're doing and the collaborative spirit that you also have. We're all about sharing and networking and trying to build up the better ideas. And certainly, I think that's the ethos behind Credder. So, Chase Palmery, thanks so much for all you're doing, and thanks for joining us on the Project Censored Show today.
2: It's been a treat to be back with you, Mickey. Take care. All right. We won, we won,
0: we won, we won, we won, we won, we won, we won the liberated land, supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own my special interest troops that fund their campaigns.
1: You've been listening to The Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.
0: Alibis, disguise, and other guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burn bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars, fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured, paid for, why taxes on the bridges and the levies and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, build the capacity, citizens. And the times for the master thief, combine, conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach, potential vain. At the table, then you're probably on the menu. We, we got want that want the love
2: of our problems,
0: love love and our sisters. Want We want the people together.